All right, peace. Let's talk about peace. Peace is a fundamental part of the way God intended creation to function from the beginning, right? Where, where a lot of the promises of God in a general sense are promises just to return to the way things were. You can go th through a number of, of the promises, which we will as we go through the series, and you can view them not as promises for anything new, but for promises for things to be the way they should be, the way they were at the beginning. Genesis 1.29, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant, yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit you, fruit, you shall have them for food, to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. It seems to be, logically, if you're thinking about this, no conflict even between animals, right? To every living thing, I have given plants for food. Well, some animals today don't eat plants. That is part of the corruption of creation. Doesn't seem to be that that was how it was at the beginning. And of course, if there's no death, there kind of fundamentally can't be conflict between creatures because for something to eat another creature, it has to die, right? So if there's no death, it just follows logically in the garden. And of course, explicitly what God is saying here, to every living thing I've given every plant, there's not even conflict between, like, lions and sheep. Like, there's just none whatsoever. Since the fall, of course, conflict has been a constant part of existence. This is an introduction to uh, the fallen state of creation, part of what Romans 8 calls uh, being subjected to futility, the corruption we have conflict between humanity and nature. That's, that's a conflict, right? And that, that can be stated in the more explicit sense of like, I'm running away from a bear. But this is more broadly stated in natural disasters, right? Things that happen in nature that cause uh, difficulty and struggle in humanity. Of course, conflict between humans and other humans, that's a big one, right? That's, again, just very obvious, right? That there's a lot of, con that's a, an introduction, again, of sin, introduction of selfishness into the equation. Of course, another conflict, thing that gives us, takes away our peace, is conflict between the human and the self. Internal conflict, strife, discord, conflict that I have within my own psyche. A lot, of, a lot of the lack of peace in our lives, in our existence, is not because of other people, it's not because of nature, it's because of the struggle I have within myself. We could go all the way to serious mental disabilities, but just the general state of humanity, people that we would not consider to be, uh, have a clinical issue, still have internal conflict. Doubt, guilt, shame, fear. Those are, in a broad sense, conflict between us and ourselves. So when we talk about the promise of peace, we have to be careful to, uh, to situate this promise in these various contexts, right? The way God promises peace applies differently to these spheres of conflict. The way God promises peace between humanity and nature, that has its own specific application. The way God promises peace between various humans, again, that, that doesn't mean exactly the same thing. And of course, the way God promises peace between us and ourselves, internal conflict. This is, of course, I think most obvious in Jesus' own statements about peace in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. This is talking about conflict between humans, right? Human to human conflict. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus knew that his message would not end conflict between humans. In many cases, this message of peace would increase conflict. That's what he's saying, right? I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Your enemies will be those of your own household, people who resist or reject the truth of the gospel message. Jesus was not under any false illusions about this. The gospel does, in many cases, create conflict. Now, it's not because the gospel is untrue. It's because sin is in the world, right? Selfishness and pride and arrogance and ignorance and doubt and fear. All of those things contribute to this. But the promise that Jesus gives for peace was not universal peace between all people. And that, that is, again, we see this in Matthew chapter 10. Nor was the promise that God gives of peace between us and nature. Romans 8, 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it and hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Again, I would, I would suggest a very basic part of this corruption, the futility, is the fact that now some animals eat other animals. Well, that's fundamentally unpeaceful. That's part of the futility. That really got done. For we know the whole creation was, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. The peace between humans and nature, that's not promised for now. That's promised until the end, right? When we have the redemption of our bodies, the adoption of sons, this revealing. And so the conflict between humanity and nature will never end. And, you know, we might say this, this is again a little bit of a funny statement, but I like eating meat. In some ways, I'm kind of I'm glad about that, right? Rise, Peter, kill and eat in Acts. But that's part of a broader picture of conflict something that has been taken from creation. Peace in the beginning, zero conflict on any, it's hard to even visualize this, no conflict on any level, not between humans, not internally. Of course, Adam and Eve, they didn't have internal strife, internal conflict. You might say because they were ignorant, but until they ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they didn't have internal conflict. They had no internal strife. They had no doubt or fear or discord. And so when we think about the promise of peace, most prominently, this is seen in the working of the Holy Spirit in the life of the individual Christian and to a secondary nature, the, the nature of the church. The promise of peace is not that there will be peace between humans on earth. The promise of peace is not that we will have peace between us and nature. The promise is that we will internally have peace. That I will have peace in myself. And in a broader sense, we should have peace in the church. Those who have accepted the peace of God should have peace amongst themselves. John 14, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. It's interesting, my peace. Well, Jesus' peace was not between him and other humans, right? I mean, his, his life is full of conflict. So many people that hated him, wanted him dead, wanted him to stop preaching, whatever you want to put in there. His peace was not between him and other people. 
His peace was in his own nature, his self. The things that he knew about himself, the things he knew about the Father, the things that he had peace in, his mission and his purpose and his clarity of purpose. And, and I'm going to do this and it's going to be okay. It's going to be hard, but at the end of it, it'll be good. We, I, I, I reference Hebrews 12 a lot, who for the joy that was set before him despised the shame. That was conflict. That was a lot of things that weren't peaceful, but he still had peace, right? My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. What gave Jesus peace is he knew the outcome. You would have rejoiced if you understood this because I'm going to the Father. And of course, they have the, he dies on the cross and they don't really understand, so they have a lot of trouble. They have a lot of turmoil. Their peace doesn't really return until he's resurrected and appears to them and, and explains to them what was going on, right? He told them he would leave peace, even though he also told them in other places, you're going to face a lot of hardship. People are going to throw you in jail. People are going to persecute you. People are going to kill you. In fact, the exact same things that happened to Jesus. And nevertheless, he says, I'm going to leave you peace. God's promise of peace, as we think about this promise, transcends physical circumstances. It did so in the life of Jesus. His peace transcended what was going on around him because it was centered in his understanding of who he was and his understanding of who the Father was and his understanding of his purpose and his mission. And I think most of all, Jesus' peace was centered in his understanding of the outcome what eventually would happen. Romans 5, 1 through 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only of that, we rejoice in our sufferings. I would suggest to you that rejoicing in sufferings is an expression of peace. Because I have conflict, I have things around me that are going badly. But I, I'm not worried about those things. I'm not upset about those things. I'm rejoicing in those things knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. That's outcome-based, right? Our peace comes from what we know to be the end. Hope's not going to put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. We have peace with God and that should affect how we respond to circumstances in life that are not strictly peaceful. The peace of God, the promise of peace, does not look like what we would think the world would think a promise of peace should look like. It is something much deeper and more profound. God promises that if we as followers of Jesus earnestly and faithfully pursue God's will, we will have peace. Again, not necessarily between us and other humans. That's the whole point of Romans 12, right? In so far as it depends on you, live peaceably at all. Well, it doesn't all depend on me. There's going to be people that hate me, that want to persecute me. And it, it's not necessarily going to be between us and nature. That, again, that is the point of Romans 8. But we will have peace in ourselves. What does this peace look like? What does it mean? Well, it means that I can be at peace even when in difficult circumstances. Disease, job loss, relationship struggles, cancer, injury, the general state of the world, whatever you want to put in there. I should still be able to be at peace. It means I can feel peaceful even when I'm confronted by others. Insofar as it depends on you live at peace with all men, doesn't matter what other people are going to be doing to me, I'm still going to respond peacefully. It means that I can make peace. What are the Beatitudes? Blessed are the peacemakers. 
for they will be called sons of God. Why are the peacemakers called sons of God? Because that's what Jesus did. He made peace. Whatever happens to me, I can make peace also in myself, but with other people. So we should be clear. The peace that God promises, and we'll read this verse in a minute, surpasses all understanding. It is not a peace that is centered in earthly logic. It's not a peace that is centered in how the world thinks about things. It is a peace that ultimately transcends earthly wisdom because it is of the Spirit. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, right? So how does God intend to fulfill this promise? We think about as we shift into the latter part of this lesson. What does, how does God intend this to be fulfilled? What are the mechanisms by which he will grant us this peace? And I, I want to look at four, this is not exhaustive, but four ways that God's promise of peace is intended to be fulfilled in the life of the Christian. Proverbs 3 verse 1, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Romans 8, 5 through 7, those who live, this is of course right before, talking about the corruption and the futility of earthly existence. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The first thing to note, the promise of peace is fulfilled in meditation on, obedience to, and learning of God's word and his will. That's what he's saying in Proverbs. Don't forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. Understanding the commandments, keeping the commandments, that's going to give you peace. In Romans 8, to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And again, if we're thinking about Jesus' peace, my peace I leave with you, don't we see this in the life of Jesus? This is what gave Jesus peace? Is his constant meditation on and understanding of God's word? Even in the temptations in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is, is take, or he's led into the desert by the Spirit. He's, he's hungry. 40 days and 40 nights. I wouldn't feel very peaceful after that much fasting. The devil comes to him. He knows this is the moment. Okay, Jesus is vulnerable. And there's this temptation after temptation, spiritual conflict. And what does Jesus do time and time again? He basically throws scripture at the devil. That's what enabled him to overcome, to have peace in his struggle. We think about, of course, in the cross at the end of his life, it is finished. When he says that, what is he thinking of? His task, his work, the thing that God wanted him to do, God's purpose for his life. How he could have peace even in that moment, he knew that he had fulfilled God's commandments, God's promises, or not God's promises, God's purposes, that's the word. We can have peace when we internalize and accept and, and ponder and meditate on God's commandments and teachings. It will help us know how to respond to various circumstances. We'll remove the peace of uncertainty. It will help us be confident that how we're responding is righteous. It'll remove the, the lack of peace that comes from guilt or doubt. Meditate, ponder, consider God's word. Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. 
Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The second way the promise of peace is fulfilled is in Christian fellowship, how we treat one another. Again, the promise is not that we will have peace with other humans, that we've seen that all along, but there is a promise that within the church, within the confines of Christian fellowship, we should have peace. Maybe all of my other relationships are horrible and terrible and full of conflict and full of discord, but these relationships should be peaceful. And they should give me peace as I'm approaching the rest of the world because I am firm and solid in the fellowship I have with other Christians. Maybe everybody else is going to hate me, but at least I have somebody here who is pursuing righteousness, who is pursuing God's truth, who is pursuing love, who is pursuing, in the words of Romans, mutual upbuilding. Peace is promised to us, not just internally in our own minds, but within the family of God. That I may not have peace in any other relationship, but I should have peace in these relationships. That doesn't mean we'll never have conflict. That never, doesn't mean we'll never disagree. I've argued with many of you in this room. But even in that arguing, that did not remove our peace. That didn't remove the solidarity that we have in Jesus and the foundation that we've built upon together of mutual love and respect and fellowship. It doesn't mean we'll always agree about everything, but it does mean that in the confines of Christian fellowship where people are trying to pursue Jesus, God has promised peace. Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Some versions have gentleness. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. I cannot stress this enough. This is not a peace in the way the world thinks about peace. This is transcendental, surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Third, the promise of peace is fulfilled in prayer and trust. What does he say? Make your requests be made known to God and the peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The guarding word is interesting. The guard your hearts and minds. The peace of God will guard. It, it, I, I like that phrase. I like the way that, that word picture comes to mind. The world is bombarding us with things that want to take away our peace. Worries about our job. Worries about health. Worries about relationships. Worries about put whatever you want to put in there. But because I'm taking those things and I'm turning around and I'm giving them to God, I'm letting him know, I'm, I'm continually faithfully praying to him to help me, to guide me, to help, to, to lead me to take some of this burden. Maybe he will, maybe he won't, but I trust that he will do what is best. And it comes back to outcome. What gave Jesus peace? What allowed him to have peace in whatever circumstance is he was totally confident in the outcome. What was going to happen at the end? He was going to conquer, be victorious, even though it stunk in the middle, he was going to ultimately win. That's what this kind of prayer is demonstrating. I believe that God is going to do what's best for me to enable me to win eternally. 
So I'm giving all of my cares and my worries and my burdens to him. I'm praying and I'm offering that to him. And in return, Jesus and God are giving me the peace that passes all understanding. That I may have difficulty in life still, but I still have peace. Because I understand no matter what happens here, God is working things out for my good. Romans 8, 28, right? We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee, uh, Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The last point I want to make, again, this was not an exhaustive list, but the points that we're making tonight, the last point I want to make, the promise of peace is fulfilled by the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. It is a fruit of the Spirit. One of the things that makes it surpass all understanding is the origin of this peace is not of this world. He gives it to us. Which is why people who are struggling and do not have the Spirit, people who are, are, are thinking they're doing what's right or thinking they know what, what God wants or they're trying their best, even so, if we've not received the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can't have that peace. We're missing the critical element that he, through his power, will grant us that peace. The promise of peace does ultimately have a universal fulfillment. What we've talked about so far is the now, the promise of peace in this life. Not a promise of peace between humans, as long as people reject God's will, there will be conflict and strife. Not a promise of peace between humans and nature, because until Jesus returns, creation has been subjected to futility, disease, natural disaster, whatever you want to put in there. But there is a promise of peace for the future. Again, a restoration, a return to the same kind of peace that creation began with. And I want to conclude with this because, again, if we're thinking about one overriding principle, what gives us peace is confidence in the outcome, confidence in the conclusion. Revelation 21, verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There shall be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That is the outcome that Jesus was working toward. Ultimately, what Jesus did was to bring about this. Why he died on the cross. Why he had peace, even as he was doing so. Because this is what he was looking forward to. A time when all of those other causes of conflict. This is looking toward the end of conflict between humans. That's all going to be gone. There's not going to be any more conflict between humans and nature. The old nature, old creation, that's, that's over. God has restored things to the perfect state. There will be no more causes of conflict. 
the things that would cause tears and death and mourning and crying and pain, all of those will be removed. He does promise peace eventually in the most absolute sense. But if we're careful to situate those promises in their original context, in the context in which they should be situated, you and I will not experience this peace in this life. We will eventually experience it, and it will be great, and it will be glorious, and it will be awesome. But it's not something that God's promised for us here. It's a promise for the end. And so in this life, what I'm promised is that no matter what's going on, I can still be at peace. Because I'm looking forward to this. And I know this is coming. And I know no matter what is happening to me now, this is what it's going to be like. But only if I am faithfully obedient and enduring to the end. And so we offer the invitation. Again, a twofold invitation. If you've never experienced God's peace, well, the first step to that is maybe you don't have the promise of the Holy Spirit. If you've not been immersed into Christ, if you've not obeyed his will, if you've not repented and confessed, we're confident. You, don't, you have not received the gift of the Holy Spirit. No wonder you don't have the peace that passes all understanding. But even if you have received that gift, I know that it's still a struggle to have peace. Part of what we've read is the peace that we find in the fellowship with other Christians. Maybe that's what you need tonight. We want to help. We want to provide that peace to you if we can. So come while we stand and sing.